Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is Professor of Social Mobility, Lee Elliott Major, with 10 ways to help your child do well. So yeah, so I, you know, my, my sort of day job really is this, this sort of topic of social mobility and you know, looking at, at the origins of people, where they come from, their family background and, and how that, that shapes their life outcomes. And I'm particularly interested in, in those from disadvantaged backgrounds and how we improve those prospects. But one of the things that has really come across in a lot of the research that I've been involved in is, is the impact of families generally and, and, and what parents do. And it's, it's always intrigued me, uh, and yet a lot of the policy debates I'm involved in are to do with schools or universities or the workplace. And it was that sort of um, missing sort of focus, if you like, that, that prompted me to write this book, which I'm going to talk about today, The Good Parent Educator. I wish I'd brought a few copies, actually, which I should have brought. And I'm going to go through some of the reasons why I've got interested in this issue of what parents can do. Um, just so you know about me, um, you know, I am as a professor quite unusual. Some people would call me a media tart, I think, you know, in, in, in academic circles. I am the first person in the family to go to university. I've still got a chip on my shoulder about that. And I was a bin man, but I was a bin man for a summer, by the way. I was a student at the time. So the, the Daily Mail took this story and, and created this, you know, huge headline. Um, so yeah, so I, I suppose just so you know, that is that is my my, my background, and and I actually uh, left home at fifteen. So I had my own place, uh, well, my own place. It was on social security um, at fifteen. So so it, again, for me, this is quite an interesting sort of topic, and and I now have two teenage children, eighteen and sixteen who no longer want to be with me, actually, interestingly, but I have given them every, I've tried to give them everything. I've probably gone the other way uh, in terms of parenting. We, um, I want to talk a little bit about that, how much you support your children, how much you let them go, I think is one of the things that we all, uh, we all wrestle with. Um, but anyway, that, that's just my, my sort of background. I'm also, various things in Exeter, I'm on the Ted Rag Trust, I'm on the Exeter Place Board, and, and, but my main job is, is, is the, being a professor. So as I said, you know, one of the things that I think we, we don't, and certainly in the national sort of policy debates that I'm involved in, is think about uh, the impact of parents enough. And I, and I think sometimes it's because governments are scared to get involved in these sort of discussions. But as I said, the, the research keeps coming back to this sort of issue, which is while schools can do something, it's actually what parents do uh, that almost matters more, it does matter more. And I just wanted to share a little bit of the research that I'm involved in that sort of as, as shows this. And this is a graph which shows essentially the literacy gap. So this is a, a research project I'm involved in. And uh, the, the blue line is basically children that get uh, maths and English at GCSE uh, and above. So they, they basically do all right at 16 in terms of English and maths. And the red line shows those that don't get a, a pass, a national pass in their English and maths. And what's really interesting in this uh, is that you can see the gap at age three. And it basically, these are all different tests at different ages, there's all sort of caveats to this uh, graph, but essentially it shows you that those, those trends stay the same, even despite all those years of schooling from age three to, to 14. 
So for me, that is partly the, the influence of, of, of parents, of the home environment that you see before school, but also uh, during school. And the other thing that we find in, 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 the, in the research that I do is what we call the education arms race. And this is the increasing amount of resources and time that we all spend. I say we all, this is really middle class parents mostly. You have to be careful of your generalizations on that. But this is fueled, this is, this is one sort of manifestation of that. And it's this boom in private tutoring. So there's been this huge boom, and it's been the last 20 years that this has happened. And I think it's partly driven by this sort of competitive world that we seem to be in. And, and, and a lot of our studies show that essentially there are less opportunities for us all. There was this boom after the Second World War in social mobility. We call it the golden sort of boom of, of social mobility where the jobs were increasing, uh, expansion jobs. We're, we're now, I'm afraid, post-Brexit, let's not get into it, but going into, I would, I would argue, an era of declining opportunities. So that, that we're all conscious of this as parents. We're all either conscious or subconscious of this. So, so there's a lot of parents doing a lot more stuff. And this is shown in this graph, just in terms of the use of private tutors outside schools. And I don't know if people here experience the same things I did, I did during the, the, uh, the COVID crisis when we all became sort of homeschoolers for, what, 18 months or so. Uh, for, there's, there's a significant number of children still missing school, by the way, which is, a, which is a, another crisis that we're facing. And this was really interesting because it, it really sort of showed a lot of parents how hard it is to, to teach you know, the first few weeks, there was all these advice articles I saw. This is how you do it. Here's a bit of neuroscience that you should learn as a parent. Or here's some breathing exercises. All varied advice that was given to parents. But within a few weeks, I think a lot of parents were finding it really difficult uh, in terms of how they were helping their, their, their children. And, and, and I think it really was, was sort of a tipping point in many ways. And, and it was also the time that I wrote this book, by the way. I was spending time writing this, this book, The Good Parent Educator. Um, and I think what, what I would say, and I'd be interested in other people's views here, is that even as a sort of educationalist, I found it um, that, 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 that being a parent, no one, could t no one told me anything. No one gave me any tips and, and advice, on, particularly on education. And then when we've done surveys of this, we find that a lot of people, a lot of parents, don't feel they get enough information on education. So again, this is one of the other, the other sort of thoughts I had um, for writing the book. Because I think we're all doing a lot, a lot more than probably previous generations. And yet, how effective is this? Is this the right things we're doing? You know, that was what I hope to sort of do with this, with this book, is to offer some advice. So another bit of my work is giving advice to teachers. And, and I do lots of studies, and reviewing thousands of studies. And, and, and what, what I'm realising is that the education system's become quite a jargony sort of world in many ways. So for parents, it's quite hard to know um, what, what teachers are talking about a lot of the time, you know, and, and I'm, I'm sort of part of that. So I'm using all the knowledge I've got to sort of actually go around from teachers to face uh, parents and, and uh, help them. Um, ultimately, you know, education is about, in my view, trying to create independent learners. And as parents, we've always got to sort of think about that in, in the back of our minds. And I wrestle with this all the time. I probably overdo it. Too much. I probably help my children far too much. And at some point, you've got to let go. And that's one of the, the great teachers are, are, are people that essentially inspire learning. I will be talking about exam results. They are important, but education isn't just about um, exam results. I think the system at the moment 
uh, makes our schools very narrow in what they tend to develop and nurture. And there's a whole chapter in the book I do about uh, art and sport and, and the fact that your children should be, depending on what they're interested in, um, you should spend as much time on that actually as the exam results themselves. And talents that come in all forms, you know, and, and, and again, this sort of speaks to that same point. I think the education system, the university system, tends to value academic success, a quite narrow analytical sort of uh, view of what talent is. And I've got, I have so many friends, so many children that I know who ha have different creative talents or vocational, different talents. And so I think we have to be really careful how we value these, the, these different talents in our kids. And also, talent develops in, in a haphazard way. It's not linear. It sort of comes in bursts. And So anyway, these are sort of just some things to remember while we're having our discussions. So I'm going to ask you a number of questions. And all this advice, by the way, is based on studies, on lots of studies. So I've used as many studies as I can, robust studies, and I've sort of come to these sort of snippets of, of advice for parents. So 30 minutes every day is enough to get benefits from. Uh, reading with your children, regular sport or exercise, homework for an 11-year-old, one-to-one tutoring. There could be more than one right answer here, but I'm looking for, for one that, that is definitely right. Any, any ideas uh, what, what 30 minutes every day is enough to get benefit from, from, from those options on those? Reading with your children. Reading. Got it straight away. Yes. <laughs> what, what, what the research suggests with this is that about, it's about 20 minutes a day. Uh, below that, you don't see the benefits. And um, you know, when, when I've spoken to parents before, they sort of say, you know, does this have to be to particular types of book? Fiction probably is better on average, but just reading with a magazine, just literally sitting down with your, your son or daughter um, will help. And obviously when they're very young, you are reading to them as they get older. You know, you, you're meant to, you, if, you're, if you're a good educator, you're gonna ask them questions. You're gonna be prompting them. You're gonna be discussing. Uh, the book. I don't think you need to do too much more than that, to be honest. And, and, and one of the things that I'm conscious of with all this stuff is that we're all really busy, you know, and, and again, here's me, the expert. The reality is, you know, I didn't read to my son and daughter every day, right? But I think if you can try and do something like that, maybe three times a week, it will have a huge benefit. When children turn up to school at primary school age, if, if you're behind in terms of reading, you don't, don't then access the learning in that school. And, and so it's a real foundational uh, skill. I mean, one, one teacher I spoke to sort of said, you know, if you're really struggling, each, even tricks like trying subtitles on TV, I mean, I use them for, you know, foreign dramas and things, but, you know, that, that we were thinking of maybe that could help, actually just seeing text on, 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 on the screen. And by the way, all the research shows that watching too much TV isn't great for, for learning generally. It's kind of all, sort of, even if you're watching... David Attenborough documentaries, probably occasionally David Attenborough, but too much does, is, is associated with poor outcomes. It's probably because you're not doing other stuff, I suspect, right, mainly. So anyway, so, that, so this is a sort of fundamental issue. And, and, and I'm, I'm talking to the government at the moment about um, their, they've got a paper out next year on literacy and numeracy. I'm trying to urge the government to think about this, about what they could suggest for parents um, uh, but they're very loath to get into it, you know, and I can sort of understand, you know, government telling parents what to do. But I think if we don't have some sort of advice for lots of parents, then we're going to still see those literacy gaps that I showed uh, earlier. So this is a really important area. It, it, it's an, we'll do a, do a sort of chapter on it in the book.
So this is quite an interesting one. What's the best way to praise your children? Um, so tell them that they are very clever, praise their efforts, congratulate them on their accomplishment, compare them with what other children have done. Um, one of the things that, that is so important in teaching is feedback in the classroom, how you give feedback. So hard to do when you've got 30 children in the classroom. Uh, and, and this sort of relates to that, but you're, you're absolutely right. It is praising their efforts. I find this whole area um, fascinating because I think what we tend to do as parents is because we want our children to do well, don't we? It's partly about us, right? You know, if we're, if we're saying that you're, you've done really well, you're really clever, you're really, and I do this all the time with my children, you know, you think that's going to help them, but actually it devalues the comments. If you're doing that day in, day out for a number of years, that, honestly, it has no effect by year five probably. And what the research suggests is that you should be praising effort more than the actual accomplishment. There's, there's a, I don't know if some of you have heard of Carol Dweck, but there's a sort of famous study she did in America. It's a bunch of students and they were all sort of similar sort of grades. And they did this experiment and, and basically um, they looked at those with what she called a fixed mindset, which was basically that you know, we have certain ability, everyone has a certain ability and you can't really change that. And, and compared that with those with a growth mindset who thought that through work and effort that they, they could actually improve their ability. And it, surprise, surprise, it was the growth mindset students who did better in their uh, university exams. And that's been a really influential study in education. It's been really hard to replicate actually um, in, in, in school. So I've been involved in all sorts of programs with teachers to try and have a growth mindset program. You might hear teachers talk about this in the schools. It's been very hard actually to replicate um, uh, that study. It's a tiny study. A lot of studies in psychology are hard to replicate, he says, bitching about these psychologists. Um, so yeah, praise effort, not achievement. And the other thing um, I, I think that you realize with this stuff is when you look into the evidence, and again, it's, it's harder to do than practice, is, is try and get them to not think about the other kids in the class. And, and I, don't, I don't know what all your experiences will have been, but for me, that was a real issue for us because they weren't at the top of the class, in, in, again, in those very academic terms. And they would sort of compare them, they'd come home and they'd always be sort of that lost, you know those sort of kids who get lost in the middle of the class? So they're, not, you know, they're sort of nice children, but they're not the sort of superstars at the top. So we really tried hard with that, you know, to sort of say, well, this is about personal best. And I think in the sporting arena, there's, in the book I talk about it, there's a lot of good tips actually from the sort of sports world in terms of this is about, you know, teachers will say it's about your per not being the best, it's making your best efforts. Um, so comparing yourself to others isn't actually that, um, that, that, that um, healthy. And also the other thing I do a whole chapter on is I'm a summer born child. Uh, so I was born in August. And what you find in all the uh, school um, uh, results is that, that we are behind as summer. So I'm, I'm behind in many ways still, I think, in some ways. But, but, but yet yeah, certainly in the early years, because, because you're almost 12 months younger than the September born children you are just going to be less developed and often teachers forget this and 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 you know so I, I did a whole sort of campaign about this that you should look at summer if you have summer born children in your classroom you should remember that and almost treat them in a slightly different way because otherwise they get put in the bottom set because they're slightly less developed and then it becomes a self-fulfilling 
uh, sort of prophecy. The, the data is really interesting. It's sort of st- I've seen studies that even even university entry, you still see uh, those gaps between summer-born children and, and others. So in terms of education policy, it's interesting because at age 11, you know, there's a lot of thought given to admissions in schools and how they do it. At age 16, there's no thought at all. So that, that depending on what area you live in, if, if you are going to change school at 16, it doesn't matter at all. Even though, you know, I would argue if you're summer-born, you should get some sort of contextual offer at age 16 because you will still be slightly behind. I do a whole thing about, I don't know if people remember Duncan Goodhue, the, the famous Olympics, I'm showing my age here a bit, but I do a, a tale of Duncan Goodhue, and, and, and that's sort of this last point, is encouraging to establish stretching but realistic step-by-step goals. He was this, do you remember this bald guy who won the, uh, ni- I think it was 1980s, uh, 1980 Moscow Olympics, he won the gold, and it was sort of this man who had fallen out of a tree, basically, when he was younger and had, got, and had fell out, and it was this amazing story. But when you heard him speak, it was all about this fact that he had set goals for swimming, you know, he'd get a millisecond off each each week. So I think that there's a good lesson in that in terms of realistic but stretching goals uh, to think about. So what's the best way to revise? Um, so, um, and the other thing, by the way, um, I, I found is that, that, that teachers don't get trained in terms of how they interact with parents. That's another thing we could talk about. So there's, no, there's not much in when you train teachers in, in how you uh, work with, with, with parents. Anyway, what's the best way to revise? Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you're going to get every question right. We'll see, right? Going over text and highlighting key passages, going over material in one go, constantly switching between completely different subjects, testing yourself by doing quizzes. Any, any um, suggestions of what the right answer is? Right at the back. It is the quizzes, yeah. You know, what, what the research suggests is that all the the stuff that I see children do, which is mainly the highlighting and rereading, and you probably all did it, I guess, most of you did it, um, actually has very little impact. And what the research would suggest is that you, you've got to think hard, you know, and, and I, there's no way of getting around this. So you've got to sort of think of it almost in, in like a physical sort of muscular thing, you know, your brain like a muscle. You can overdo that analogy, I think, but. Um, but certainly the thing that seems to work is, 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 is quizzes. And you can do all sorts of quizzes with them. In terms of spaced learning, but basically the idea is that you should look at a, um, a subject, but then you know, leave a day between subjects. So actually you, you know, people talk about interleaving practice, which is essentially swapping over different topics. And often I look at textbooks for schools and, and they all fail to do that. So often you, you'll see the same sorts of questions in maths repeated time and time again. The better practice would be to mix them up. You have to be a bit careful again with that, we're not mixing up too much, but the, the, the studies would suggest that that is, uh, again, another way that I guess is testing the brain. So you're, you're not just uh, doing sort of, sort of more routine things. So, so think about interleaving as well. Mnemonics, mnemonics are, are useful for memorizing vocabulary, um, uh, and I've used some of those over the years as well. And by the way, in this book, I'm not suggesting as parents we become teachers. I think that's, the, yeah, that's a job we should respect and it's for the professionals. But I think it's good to know all this stuff. Um, but, you know, when I talk about uh, with teachers uh, how to improve feedback in the classroom, we talk about uh, sort of leaps of learning. And, and if the teacher moves on too quickly, it just becomes a sort of chasm. But you need to stretch. So it's a real skill, that. So often in teaching, you will see, particularly if the whole class is given something, that for some children, it's just too far, too much, too quickly. 
and really great teachers are the ones that can, and it's an amazing skill, I think, you know, can cater for all those different children. So, so those sort of things are worth, I think, uh, talking to the teacher about as well, um, if, if, if that's um, uh, a problem. So homework tips. One of the American uh, researchers on this, the sort of homework guru in America, came up with this sort of 10-minute rule. And, um, and so there's been these homework wars, we call them the homework battles, the homework wars over the years. And so you have some decades where, this is both in Britain and America, where homework becomes the, the big thing and there's more, we should be doing more and more and more homework. And then you have these different eras and we're sort of entering into that era now where, where it's sort of, no, actually there's too much homework. We want to let our children actually breathe and live outside schools and, 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 and that's where we are at the moment. You, it's really interesting over the history of the last 100 years, you see these peaks and troughs. Um, and and I, I think this 10 minute rule is a really good rule. And basically what, what he says is that a, a 10 year old shouldn't be doing more than 10 minutes a night homework in, in his view. Anything above that basically become diminishing returns. But you add 10 minutes for every year group. So for an 11 year old, it would be 20 minutes a night, et cetera, et cetera. So for six formers, it's a couple of hours a night. The problem I find is that in secondary schools, I found that each of these departments were all giving our children homework. So they were having, you know, that you get loads of homework. And, and that was always a challenge. And I think we should challenge actually teachers on some of this stuff, because I think sometimes they don't know the consequences of, of what's happening in the home. As, as, as they get older, it's harder to know the content. I mean, I get confused with some of the mathematics, uh, to be honest with you, um, when they get to GCSEs. And, 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 and I, but the thing you can do, the evidence suggests, is what we call study skills, basically, which is you know, helping them to plan, um, monitor, and review. So I found with a lot of young people, is for essays, for example, they will just launch into the essays. They will think it's quicker <laughs> if they just rush straight in. It isn't. Before you start writing, you should do a plan. What are the five paragraphs going to be? All teachers say this, but, but, yeah, but, but I think young people find this difficult. And, and I used to say to my son all the time, Jack, you know, it will take much longer. He would launch in the first paragraph and then it would finish. He, he would stop, halt, halt after the first paragraph. But what you really should do, and the evidence is pretty strong on this, is just plan out, you know, what are, the, what are you going to roughly say in this? In this uh, and as you go along, you monitor it. And, and at the end, you review it. And, and by the way, it's good exam practice as well. If you try and write the question, then review it afterwards. So study skills is something you can help them with, managing time and, and, and sort of planning and, and reviewing. So pupils spend as much as 80% of their time in class doing what, right? You can read this. Any, any ideas of what, this speaks to the sort of feedback challenge in the classroom I was talking about. You're right, it's pretending to listen. Uh, now this is from a study from quite a long time ago, it's based in New Zealand, it's, it's sort of, but you know, it's one of these studies that's amazing. It was, it was uh, Graham Nuttall uh, videotaped, sound taped the, the, the children in class, one of the few studies that's done it properly. And, and the book's called The Hidden Lives of Learners. It's, it, and, 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 and so I just wanted you to, to know that because just because they're in the classroom doesn't necessarily mean they're listening. And I'll tell you what kids are good at. They're good at nodding their heads, pretending to listen. And whenever I give lectures, by the way, I'm always looking at everyone thinking what the evidence is that most of you are thinking what I've got to do tomorrow, what, what happened today, <laughs> what this professor is prattling on about. So a good teacher can spot this, but I tell you what, young children are very good at pretending to listen. They are brilliant at it. Don't assume just because they're in the classroom they are learning. <laughs> And I often say to people, ask your children what, you know, what feedback did they get from the teacher today? 
it's a good question to ask them. And if they're not getting any feedback from the, the teacher, I think then you know, that, that prompts sort of questions. Um, in terms of asking questions for schools, um, you know, we, we, we obsess about things like school uniforms and, 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 and all this stuff. Actually, I think, you know, for me, one of the biggest challenges for schools is that they've all got a brilliant teacher in the school. They, most schools will have an inspirational teacher. The big challenge for them all is that they don't use, in my view, that enough to then inspire other teachers in the school. So what we find in the studies is there is a huge gap in teaching quality in each school. You know, my question would be to each school is how are you developing your teachers using the teachers you've got in the school? They won't like you asking that question, by the way. It's something that all teachers are aware of um, and it's one of the big challenges that schools all face. Who is the best tutor? Any, any view on this? It's a teacher. I mean, it depends with the university graduate. Um, we don't want to get into it, but you know, things like Teach First, I don't know if people know Teach First, you know, which is you, know, you just get these top university graduates, you don't do much training and you put them into the classroom. I, I worry about that because of exactly that. You know, they haven't had, in my view, proper... I, I think we should have teachers who have proper training. Pro that's probably not what other people would argue. Um, but private tutoring is, is, is an unregulated industry. And, um, you know, so I just, I just think you've got to be careful with this because you can spend a lot of money on tutors and... Because it's not regulated, you don't know. It probably is better that they were a teacher at one point. You know, they might be retired. They might be a lot of teachers, by the way, do this to earn money. I think it's outrageous in many ways that we pay teachers so little that they're having to do this to make ends meet. And that, there's a whole industry around this. So in the book, I go from early age. So we talked a lot about school children, haven't we? But but I do do stuff around university as well. Uh, and, and actually I do a chapter on when they come back from university because increasingly they will come back by the way. Um, so any, any just on this, you know, how many students regret the degree, uh, they, and this is not at Exeter, this is generally, this is, during the, this is during the course, this is as students, yeah, this is second year, I think they were second year undergraduates. But it was one in three, and I think that we have a system where we rush into these things. I mean, I'm going through it now with my, my son, and it's like suddenly you've got to make these big choices with a lot of money involved with them. And I think the whole system actually needs these thinking about. Um, what I would say to you as parents on this is that, you know, it is a big investment decision this for you. And, and I, you know, I'm just grappling with the amount of money that would be involved because, you know, you do have the grant, you do have the loan, but then you're gonna have to pay for accommodation, all sorts of other things. So I think really, I know it sounds so obvious, but do your research. I, I, just, I just find that everyone rushes into this. And when you ask young people age 18, I'm thinking of the youngsters here, they don't really know what they want to do. And a lot of them just go with it because everyone else is doing it. All their friends are going to university. So it, it tends to be a, 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 a sort of very quickly done thing. And I think not enough research done. By the way, there's some really good apprenticeships now. I mean, the Exeter University has now degree apprenticeships. There's not as many as there should be, but there are some um, ones that actually uh, lead to higher earnings than many degrees. And a lot of degrees, I'm not just saying it's just about earnings, right? It's not just about that, but some of them will not lead to jobs and earnings as, as others. So we can't just assume that. But I, I just come back to that sort of point again that, I hope I haven't given the impression that you've got to do a lot of support too much because I think we've all we've all got lives as well, and I, t I do I do a sort of story in the book about a lot of people that I know um, who when their children finally go after coming back after you know they get divorced basically because they've spent so much time 
dedicated to the children that they look at each other. What, what, what have we got left? You know, so so I think you've got to get. I know that's perhaps an extreme case, but you know you've got to balance this. And and really, what you're trying to do with all this is get them passionate about something. You know, that's what really education is about. Um, so happy to. These are the so these are the ten things which we've run through. I'll be very interested in any questions, challenges. Happy, happy to to discuss. Um, and the book, yeah, is available um, everywhere. So thank you very much. <laughs> You've been listening to Professor of Social Mobility, Lee Elliott Major. This was an Agile Rabbit event recorded at Exeter Phoenix.